welcome back to the Sports Lawyers Association podcast. Whether you work for a team on the field, the ice, a court track, or a diamond, our association gives you an opportunity to grow. You're listening to episode number 13, Contracting in the Age of the Coronavirus, with your host, Bobby Hacker, the president of the Sports Lawyers Association. Alongside Bobby is Narissa Coyle McGinn, another member of the Sports Lawyers Association. Sit back and enjoy this episode of the Sports Lawyers Association podcast. Hello there, everyone. This is Bobby Hacker, president of the Sports Lawyers Association. And I'm happy to have as our guest today, Narissa Coyle McGinn of Loeb & Loeb, their Chicago office. She is a partner of the firm and the chief diversity partner and co-chair of the diversity committee. She represents ad agencies, large corporations, and pro sports teams, among them the New York football giants, the Chicago Bulls, and the Detroit Red Wings. Also working in the digital world with app developers and establishment of various privacy policies. And of great note on the Sports Lawyers Association website, she provided us with a blog on contracting in the age of coronavirus, which leads us to what we're going to talk about today, which I think we can put under the penumbra of force majeure and what it really means today. So thank you for joining, Narissa. I appreciate it. No problem. Do you want me to start out on um, what's been going on a little bit with the with the sports world and uh, talking about the force majeure? I think that's really important because unfortunately, I think many lawyers and especially non-lawyers see force majeure and think it's an end-all be-all. But I think yeah. as you, you can note, depending on your jurisdiction, force majeure provisions may be interpreted differently. And of course, what do contracts have to say about how force majeure works? So this started coming up for me uh, probably in March, especially with the cancellation of so many different sporting events and what people, <laughs> what sponsors were going to do. I had several different um, sweepstakes and, and contests where the prizes related to sending people to sporting events, which is always um, a very popular prize. And, you know, what was going to happen now that these sporting events are getting canceled and people can't travel? And I think you're right. The force majeure clauses, you know, really are interpreted differently depending on what jurisdiction you're in and what's going to happen depending on what jurisdiction. So I'm going to look at, I just thought I'd talk really quickly about um, some key differences, particularly in New York and California. And I chose those jurisdictions for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, there's been, those are two hot spots for coronavirus, but also there's a lot of entertainment and sports, sporting events that go on in those jurisdictions. All states allow um, parties to depart from the um, common law rules regarding contract performance by having a force majeure clauses. But there are some some key differences on how they let these people, how they let people depart from those um, contract pr provisions, the common law contract provisions. I think one of the important things to look at is in New York, force majeure clauses are construed very narrowly, 
and generally you're only going to be excused, they're only gonna excuse a party's non-performance if the force majeure event is specifically identified in the agreement. Um, so what the New York courts will do is that they're going to look at your agreement, they're gonna look at your specific force majeure language and um, only if it's ambiguous will they you know, leave the four corners of the contract and look at the general principles of contract interpretation just to interpret that force majeure provision. In some states, there is a common law force majeure and it's unclear so that if what a common law force majeure will do is that if you have no force majeure provision in your agreement, common law provisions of um, contract acting will, will take over. It's unclear that New York does have that type of common law. They, um, they do have common law rules of non-performance, such as impossibility, frustration of purpose, um, and sur su supervening. They, they do, it's not clear they have a common law force majeure um, provision. I mean, that, that is going to be something that's, that's going to, that's going to be very difficult um, in New York. There is some language in the New York case law that in a, if an event has to be um, unforeseeable at the time of the contracting. So I think that for, you know, Things that we contracts that we entered into back in January or in 2019, this was you know pretty unforeseeable <laughs> at that point. I don't think that people were thinking that we were going to have stay-at-home orders, sporting events were going to be canceled. And I think we're going to talk about this later in the podcast. But what's unforeseeable at this point is a lot different than it was six months ago. The other thing that I I thought that you know I wanted to compare the New York law to the California law. And um, California does have um, some similarities. They are going to look at the contract first to see if there's a force majeure clause, but California does have a force majeure um, common law doctrine um, so, that the, you know, so that there will be a force majeure clause that is going to be implied into the, into the contract. The common law force majeure doctrine in um, California is pretty broad so that uh, compared to other states. So there are some states like for instance, um, Tennessee, they do have a common law force majeure doctrine, but it's limited to acts of God. And whether or not this falls under an act of God is something that we're gonna discuss a little bit later. But in California, it's much broader. And so it would also include government regulations. So, and that, that again, is going to be very helpful when you're looking at force majeure at, at, you know, potentially non-performance under a force majeure provision, when there are government regulations that are requiring you to stay at home. So this, this sort of begs a practical lawyering consideration, namely the drafting of force majeure provisions. And I cannot imagine that any lawyer would be comfortable with relying on what the common law might provide. And we have to ask how narrowly or how broadly can you draft a force majeure provision? And this causes me to look back to the 9-11 era where you had insurance companies, for example, and you had contractual situations where 
there were denial of claims or denial of permission of use of force majeure defense because it was an act of terrorism and an act of terrorism was not called out for either in the force majeure provision or in an insurance contract. Right. And I think that we're going to have, there's, there's going to be a lot of issues. If you're going to look at the specific provisions of, um, you know, what you can list out in, you know, what, what is normally listed out in a force majeure provision prior to this time period in 2019, um, you're going to have acts of God, you're going to have terrorism, you're going to have, you know, government regulations, travel restrictions, but you might not have a pandemic listed. You might not have an epidemic listed because that's just not something that we had had since 1918. You know, I think this is something to really think about. Even if you do list in the force majeure clause, you list pandemic or you list epidemic. You know, right now we are in the middle of a pandemic, but in the fall, will we be in the middle of a pandemic? I don't know. It's pretty easy to say it is when, you know, the World Health Organization has declared that there is a pandemic, but it's going to be a lot different, you know, in eight months or in um, even three or four months and whether you're going to be able to use those clauses. So I think you're exactly right. When you start to write these clauses, these force majeure clauses, because you know, you might not have a common law force majeure to fall back on, then you're, you're going to have to be very specific about, you know, what is going to be included in that force majeure clause. I know that it's difficult, but you raise a very interesting question, which is what you might describe as the fallout from these kind of events. That is to say, we have a pandemic today. The impact and the fallout of that in the fall does it still, is there a tail to it? How, how do you protect your client if you say to them, well, today we have a governmental intervention that says there's a, you know, a pandemic and we're making all these restrictions on your behavior. And then you get to, let's say, October and the tail may still be there because businesses may not be open, but the governmental intervention may have ceased. What are you going to tell your clients then when they're trying to recover for costs that they can't balance against attendance, for example. Right. And, you know, I think to make this even more complicated, there are a couple of things. So if you have a national, a national which, or an international event, the travel restrictions are going to be different for different people depending on where they're coming from. Right. The, you know, you might not be able to get in from Canada, but if you live in Florida, you can really go or you know, maybe not Georgia. You might be able to go where you want to go, um, just depending on, uh, you know, what the rules are in that state. So when they say that, you know, certain events, whether or not that event, you can invoke the force majeure clause because of travel restrictions is going to be really messy. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I look at, uh, from my background in sports media, you know, you have a question about an obligation under a contract to provide certain services. Well, what happens if you have a union that says, well, we're not going to allow our technical crew to sit inside of a truck with no social distancing? Right. So there are so many issues 
it just doesn't stop because in the sports world, I think you have to have a, in advising your clients, for example, it's not just can you have this game because particularly in, in, in the sports world, a big part of the income stream comes from your media partner and you're going to lose that. And can you force them to broadcast your game or are they going to be, it's as if you're having battle of the competing force majeure clauses and they may be very different. You know, how do you, how do you navigate those kinds of problems? How do you, and how, and you know, that's, it's a really interesting issue just because a lot of the, there aren't that many cases on this, but a lot of the cases um, like, for instance, there is one case where it was in Maine, it was a cholera epidemic, and the worker, um, I guess I have to see what year it was, but it was, it was in 1857. So it was, a, <laughs> that's how far back we have to go. Eight, so in 1857, a worker said, I don't want to come to work because there's a cholera epidemic in the area you're sending me to work, right? And he was excused from performance. Now, Let's say, you know, you pick a, a game in any major city. Let's say it's going to be in New York City. Then, well, that's a hot spot. So, you know, someone might have a reasonable expectation that, you know, that it might be dangerous to, to do something in New York City. But let's say it's in Houston. And um, Houston, you know, there, there are no restrictions there. But... All the people that are coming in to that are going to be working in the truck are from New York, right? And so it just makes it so much more complicated. You can't just look at the one area where the event is happening because that that's it's not going to be enough to protect people, and people from New York might not want to come in. Yeah, and I think that becomes that becomes the the issue that we're really facing because I think. You know, in the sports world, everybody wants to see live sports, and we've been deprived of that for a couple months now. But, you know, it's much bigger than allowing teams to compete in stadiums without fans. How do you distribute that? And what are the competing interests? Because you may, as we lawyers do, we have to argue by analogy sometimes. And now you're using an 1850 cholera case to explain why this union guy of this union doesn't have to show up, which would beg the question, well, if the union is saying our people can't show up and we have an obligation to only use union employees, are we as the broadcaster now allowed to step outside of that union contract and bring in non-union uh, workers to make the broadcast? Right. You know, you're, you're dealing with, battles between rights under the National Labor Relations Act, common law considerations, and what actual force majeure provisions may be in contracts and collective bargaining agreements. So I think that the juggling act for lawyers is going to be some new horizons, if nothing else. And I think that one of the things you have to think about now, especially when you're talking about some of these big events that are going to be coming up, like hopefully in the fall, the fact that you may not have an NFL game because of the coronavirus is definitely foreseeable. And so all a lot of these common law doctrines that you have are going to are not going to be applicable because of the fact that the um, the event is a foreseeable event. 
it's definitely foreseeable that in the, I mean, we have Dr. Fauci out there saying this is going to come back and it's going to be worse in the fall and the winter. So, you know, at this point, I think we're, we're on notice that, that these events could get canceled again. So we're, we're going to have a new legal doctrine in cancellation, termination of force majeure known as the Fauci doctrine, I guess, because he has, a, he has established, you know, when you ask the question, which, you know, real life lawyers ask, is this a foreseeable event? You have a leading infectious disease specialist saying it's a foreseeable event, which will be an interesting argument if, you know, litigation ensues. Right. And really the only way to get around that then is by having a very strong force majeure clause so that the force majeure clauses, you know, there's the interpretation of the force majeure clauses that we wrote in 2019, but now it's the writing of the force majeure clauses and what is going to be interpreted as falling under those force majeure majeure clauses, particularly important right now. You know, I had mentioned earlier, I used the word, word fallout. I'm here at the beach, so let's talk about wave. We, we've seen the first wave, and we know about the force of the wave, the shape of the wave, and the duration of the wave. But somewhere way outside, there's a second wave coming. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, we, we may know, for our friend Dr. Fauci, that a second wave is coming. But really, we know very little about it. So... The foreseeability of something, but not its impact, becomes another issue to to address and to how do how do we affect it in language terms? If you know a client comes to us and says, "Well, I want to be protected for this event I have going on in the fall," how do we protect against it? Right, and I think you know when our clients are coming to us and talking, asking us about this, this is something that there's not a one-stop answer. I know that courts are closed, and I'm not even sure what the process is in filing cases, but Nurse, are you aware of any litigation that's on the horizon with respect to interpretation of these provisions? I have not heard of any litigation so far. And so we're still kind of, we're still really looking at the, you know, the cases from 1857 and from 19... <laughs> Um, you know, we have a couple cases. There are some more recent cases um, when we're looking at some of the specific language for what falls under um, some of the different events for uh, force majeure clauses. But I'll, but when you're looking at especially the common law cases, you're looking at some pretty old cases. And so you represent some professional for- sports franchises in your practice, correct? Yes. So without obviously disclosing any confidences. Are there any common concerns among those organizations? And if so, in what areas are you finding the uh, the biggest sort of set of questions? You know, I haven't as much, I mean, we, I <coughs> represent also advertisers um, who do a lot of advertising related to sporting events. So, you know, the sports teams, you know, a lot of them hopefully are going to, you know, they're going to have seasons and those things are going to happen. We have seen a lot more issues with the sponsors of those, of those events um, and what's going to happen uh, with, um, with their, with their sponsorship dollars and, you know, if events aren't happening, things like that. 
I think what most casual observers of in the sporting space miss out on is how many layers there are in professional sports. And so it's more than a team hiring players and coaches. Team also has an entire business structure and all of those people are affected. And if you're having events that involve an arena that you may operate, you're dealing with all of the people that work there, the vendors, the of, of food and of t-shirts and hats and whatnot. And you're dealing with your radio and TV partners. And if you're the owner of a professional sports franchise, you are now having seven, eight, 10, 15, 20 income streams simultaneously adjusted. What kind of counsel do you give to those teams as to manage what is ultimately a crisis for their business? Right. And, you know, the interesting thing about some of these is, you know, from a some of these agreements that the sports teams have, right, is even if you look at the, the season tickets, people have already paid money in and these seasons are going to be much shorter. What's going to happen with the, and even the upcoming season, what is going to happen with those, for those season ticket holders? And there's a lot more that goes into those season tickets than just the attending of the game. Um, so it's going to be, it's, it's going to be really messy for these professional sports teams, uh, at all levels, not just, you know, with, with the, with the consumers, with their media deals, with the, and then you're right, all the employees that are, that are also working there too. And also we can't lose sight of the fact that there are financial organizations involved. For example, there are teams that have huge debt service for the arenas that they've built or remodeled. How are banks and other financial institutions dealing with this situation? I don't know if there's been any defaults recorded yet, but clearly there seems to be a concern that one would have of how am I going to service my debt when my income stream has been cut by 70 or 80%. Right. This is something that I think that we're going to be as lawyers working out for a very long time. It's not going to work. And it's going to be, again, kind of what I said, it's going to be different for every, every team and every instance and every event. It's interesting to me to see this as a really a holistic crisis because it is so broad and it affects so many business operations that from a lawyer's perspective, how do you adjust your client's expectation on the one hand, and how do you prioritize which deal you're going to address? Because if you have, let's say, 10 or 15 simultaneous business transactions affecting your client, how do you prioritize them, and how do you help guide your client to decide, you know, what sword they're willing to fall on, so to speak. Right. The other thing that I think is, while it feels like it's very slow moving, the interpretation of each of these force majeure clauses and, you know, common law, what, what's going to happen and whether or not the common law doctrines are going to apply and the, you know, the different common law doctrines, like if you look to impracticability or, you know, if there's impossibility or frustration of purpose, 
it's so fact specific so that what we are going to tell clients is going to change. Honestly, it can change from day to day. I mean, if you even look at how like the NCAA in March Madness, you went from March Madness was on to March Madness is on with, um, with no fans to March Madness is canceled in about a week, right? And you have like what you're going to tell your clients from day to day when that's going on is going to be different because, you know, whether or not the force majeure clauses are going to apply are going to change and whether or not, you know, if certain events are foreseeable based upon, you know, you're going to have the event, but, but with, without fans to when it was canceled. Well, by the time, you know, in between that time, it might've been foreseeable that the event was going to be canceled. So it's, it's, it's really messy. And I know we've, we've focused a lot on, on sports teams, obviously, we're the Sports Lawyers Association. We're interested in that. But in your practice, when you you spend a lot of time in the digital space, how do you see these kind of issues affecting either app development or just maintaining those kinds of businesses? Yeah, I, it, you know, it's much different in the digital space than it is in the sports space because in the digital space, you have people that are trying to create new apps to kind of deal with this with with this crisis you have um you have a lot of privacy issues it's a much different world in the digital space than it is for the sports world right now yeah and i think part of it is you know the old doctrine of be careful what you wish for because i think we look at a, a company like zoom that we all be suddenly embraced i did not know from zoom two months ago and while it has gone, you know, exponentially expanded its footprint, it is not without issues. We've all heard about Zoom bombing. So again, I think for lawyers, it's a particularly interesting time because clients expect us to have some sort of a crystal ball to create documents, to negotiate transactions that have some insight into the future. But we are in a in a world we've never experienced. And, you know, the reality is as lawyers, we also have responsibilities to client relations. And I can see there being some strains there because answers change from day to day in, in this sort of very dynamic changing world in which we now find ourselves. Yeah, it, it's really impossible right now. You're gonna have to really sit down with each, you know, with each client when you're like specifically with these force majeure provisions and you're going to have to think through what, what are the possibilities and why would we potentially want to cancel and, you know, really try to cover all of those and then try to think about what the potential remedies are going to be that are going to, you know, get your client what you want. Because if you're not specific, I don't know that you're going to be able to, you know, get the client the result that they want. Right. And you're balancing. I think the toughest thing to my mind's eye is the balancing act between the remedies that your business may need and the relationship with the party from whom you're seeking a remedy. Right. We're not going to be in a pandemic forever. So you want to be able to maintain those relationships. So are you are you more lawyer or more handholder these days? 
<laughs> I think that I, I, I'm probably a good mixture of both. <laughs> Just because you you do have to, um, and I think people are really nervous and. Um, it's, it's not just handholder on what's, what's going to happen with your business, but probably also a little bit of handholder on just having to care about your clients. Well, I think that's, that's a good place to maybe tie this up. You know, we lawyers are, are governed by a, I, I guess our prime initiative is the zealous representation of our clients. And by that, it means there's a burden on all of us as, as practicing attorneys to present our clients with all of the facts, all of the possibilities. And now we're in a situation of trying to define unknowns and future unknowns and give our clients enough information with which they can ultimately make the decision because it's ultimately theirs. So we are in very strange times. And, you know, I guess the lesson here before I ask you for final thoughts is try to think about all the possibilities when you're drafting agreements, because you, you know, you may not know, but we learn more and more. Uh, history informs the decisions we make and how to protect our clients' interests. I think that that's, that's exactly, exactly right. You're going to have to really be proactive on thinking about, you know, what are the, you know, what are the next steps in the pandemic? Um, you know, what's going to be happening with the second wave. Um, and I know none of us have a crystal ball on what's going to happen next, but it's not just going to be that you are looking at what the law is or what happened in 1857 or what happened in 1918 and looking at past cases. It's going to be really trying to figure out what you think are the possibilities of what's going to be happening in the fall. Um, what's going to be happening next winter and uh, planning for those so that your clients are properly protected when they're entering into agreements right now. Well, Nurse, I'd like to thank you for your time. It was very insightful. I think many lawyers look at force majeure and don't really look behind the curtain of force majeure. And I think we've had a great opportunity here to, to, to look behind that curtain and to see how important it is in the world of unknown circumstances and conditions, which probably helps to inform us in how to advise our clients in drafting provisions and to accept that there are some things about which we may be so surprised we can't anticipate. And we try, but we may not have all the answers, but we'll certainly argue by analogy. So thank you for your time today. Really appreciate your taking part in this Sports Lawyers Association podcast. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in today. Feel free to share your thoughts with us on Twitter at Sports Lawyers or find us on Facebook and LinkedIn. And be sure to be on the lookout for more podcasts.